The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Exploring our oneness with spirit and each other. Unity Online Radio. Welcome to Spirit of Recovery, where spirituality and recovery meet with Reverend Anna Schaus, Ph.D. Now, here's your host, Reverend Anna Schaus. Welcome to Spirit of Recovery, the place where spirituality and recovery meet, where we support your spiritual growth in recovery. My name is Anna Schaus, and I'm your host. I want to thank you for listening with us today. I am very glad that you have joined us. And we're, as always, we're going to have a great program for you today that I know you will be inspired by and get some new ideas and um, some new insights into the process of recovery and into long-term recovery. I want to thank you also for liking us on Facebook. Spirit of Recovery Indeed has a Facebook page, and it's great to get new likes every week. And thank you also when you post your comments on there. Appreciate your participation. I want to thank you also for letting your friends and the people in your recovery community, your unity community, your other spiritual communities, your family, your friends know about Spirit of Recovery. It's great to get the word out. I am grateful to be broadcasting on the topic of recovery and spirituality right here on UnityOnlineRadio.org. And thank you also for your emails, for letting me know that what we're doing on Spirit of Recovery is making a difference for you, that it's touching your life and that you're enjoying what the guests are bringing you. Every week we talk about topics that are important to the recovery community with guests who are down-to-earth, knowledgeable, and innovative. My guests are always people who are either in recovery themselves or who work with or write for recovering people, and they're always bringing practical information that you can use and lively discussions that get you thinking. You know, you can listen to Spirit of Recovery in a variety of ways. You can listen live via your computer or via your smart device. You can go to Stitcher.com and download their app and then search for Spirit of Recovery. You can uh, listen on demand. We've got several years worth of great archives. Just go to unityonlineradio.org slash program slash Spirit of Recovery and you'll find amazing inspiration and great information there in the programs from our past. I want you to know also that if you like what's happening on Spirit of Recovery and or the many other great programs on this nonprofit radio station, UnityOnlineRadio.org, you can financially donate to the radio station. It's easy to do. Just text to Unity Radio to 72727 and you can give a one-time financial donation or an ongoing donation and that helps this nonprofit station keep providing great programs for you. I want you to know that Spirit of Recovery is a welcoming place if you're a person that's in recovery from any kind of an addiction or if you're the family member or friend of somebody that's got the disease of addiction and perhaps as a family member or friend you are in your own recovery as a family member because you know family members 
have that family disease and uh, can also recover. So, or maybe you're just somebody that's uh, curious about the process of recovery. Whoever you are, we're glad you're here. You're welcome to call in with a comment or question for my guest or to email in. And we're sure glad you're here. You're certainly welcome to listen and participate. We're just glad you're here. Again, my name is Anna Schaus, and I'm your host. I'm a unity minister and also an addictions counselor. I'm also a person who has in my own circle of love and friendship many people with the disease of addiction. And 34 years ago, those relationships were a catalyst um, in my life that got me on a path of personal growth and spiritual development. And my walk continues to be an integration of unity and recovery principles. And that keeps transforming my life. So I'm grateful to have the opportunity to share these ideas with you and bring you great guests. Our topic today which I stole from my guest's, one of her presentations, is, it's good. I thought I couldn't resist this. It's mindful, F-U-L-L, two words, or mindful, with a question mark. Mindful or mindful? The benefits of awareness. And my um, guest is Teresa Libby, Ph.D. And, uh, you know, recovery thrives when we are present in the present, when we're in the present moment, when we're aware of our breath, our physical senses, and the activity in our minds, and, and we're here and now, and that's really what the recovery process is always pointing to, what happens is that leads to greater acceptance of ourselves, and it leads to space to process our experience and to make wise choices. And my guest, Teresa Libby, is an assistant professor and is the coordinator of the Alcohol and Drug Counseling Master of Science program at Metropolitan State University, and that's in St. Paul, Minnesota. And she is going to be sharing with us today a wide range of things. The core of it is she's going to be talking to us about why and how mindfulness practice is so important to long-term recovery and how it's a really important part of relapse prevention. And she's going to be sharing some of the research behind this and why it is used today as an evidence-based practice, meaning one that has been researched, that has been vetted as something that actually you can demonstrate the results. And Professor Libby is a neuroscientist. She's an addictions counselor. She's a recovery advocate and a researcher. She has authored numerous publications on the neurobiological mechanisms of addictive drugs. And she does a wonderful job of making this complex topic easy to understand. And you can learn more about her work if you go to www.metrostate.edu and you can look there for the uh, Masters in Addiction program. Um, also, she has a website, www.talibby.com. So, Teresa, welcome to Spirit of Recovery. Thank you, and I'm really pleased to be here. Thanks for asking me. Yeah, we're glad you're here, and thank you for saying yes. Um, I know. I know that you have uh, been working with this idea of mindfulness for a while mm-hmm. and um, and looking at that and why it matters to people in recovery. So give us a little background about it. Where did it come from? And, um, and then we'll go from there. Well, the integration of mindfulness practices into first uh, medical care and then psychiatric and substance use disorder care really started with uh, John Kabat-Zinn's early uh, pilot studies of using mindfulness practices to help reduce the suffering of chronic pain patients. Uh, but I don't think I need to tell you and probably don't need to tell your listeners that mindfulness practices go back thousands of years um, and that, um, uh, as many of your listeners may know, right mindfulness is one of the Excuse me. Is uh, one of the eight um, spokes of the wheel, if you will, um, on the uh, on the uh, eightfold path of um, uh, of Buddhist practice. Mm-hmm. So, right mindfulness is you know has to do with practicing um, and deliberately practicing, intentionally practicing um, in a focused way, um, uh, being present to this moment, to living undistracted, to living in uh, what's happening here and now rather than being fully caught up in the thoughts, feelings, and sensations that are constantly, uh, you know, part of our experience. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. so it's not instead of being, you know, going off, you know, into thoughts that carry me away or off into feelings that carry me away, I experience whatever my thought, thoughts, feelings, and sensations are in this moment. Um, and I experience what my interactions are and what my activities are in this moment. Um, it, uh, Thich Nhat Hanh has been quoted many times uh, in, in what he says about this, which is uh, when you're doing the dishes, do the dishes. Right. Right. So that's a, a you know, widely known quote from him. But, uh so mindfulness practices have been with us in for uh for thousands of years. Um but what Kabat Zinn did was combine his own personal knowledge of Buddhist practice with his work um as a psychologist working with chronic pain patients. And the question he asked was if um uh, people who are experiencing chronic pain engage in mindfulness practices, will it alleviate any of their suffering? Will it produce any positive outcomes for them that are not available in the steps that they're already taking? And out of that was generated the curriculum known as mindfulness-based stress reduction which has now been practiced for many, many years and, you know, to address a variety of chronic medical issues, to help people, not only people with chronic pain, but people with heart conditions and um, a variety of other physical conditions, uh, deal with those more successfully. Um, the kinds of improvements that we see are um, that, for instance, with chronic pain patients, uh, the studies show that uh, chronic pain patients have um, fewer uh, episodes of breakthrough pain. They have uh, a reduced need for um, pain medication. Um, they have uh, increases on various quality of life indicators as a re- result of ongoing mindfulness practice that starts in the mindfulness-based stress reduction curriculum. With that, what about the the emotional part of it? Because um, mm-hmm. I, I think that what what I'm aware of anyway, and you can tell us more, much more about this, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. But that when people have physical pain, there's also mm-hmm. emotional suffering that goes with it, and they kind of and it can lead to depression and anxiety, and it kind of all flows together. So, how does does the mindfulness practice address the emotional, the anxiety, mm-hmm. or the depression? Or mm-hmm. what's your take on that? How does that work? Yeah, that's great. So in mindfulness, mindfulness-based stress reduction, for those who aren't familiar with it, there are a variety of um, uh, practices that one engage, engages in. And um, the four main practices are body scan meditations, um, gentle yoga, uh, sitting mindfulness practice, and walking mindfulness practice. So in all of those, there are opportunities to notice what's going on with physical sensations. But likewise, there are opportunities to know what's going on with um, uh, thoughts and feelings. So the practice of sitting meditation, for example, um, gives one the opportunity to sit undistracted. And when distractions arise, which... Anna, you know, they inevitably do, right? If I sit still, I've done mindfulness practice for some years in my life. Sometimes I've been very, very dedicated to it, and other times, you know, I have not, I've been less dedicated to it, I'll put it that way. But no matter how many times I've done sitting meditation, um, I, there are, it doesn't take very many breaths for my mind to go off someplace and for me to get focused on some small physical discomfort or in my grocery list or a student that I'm concerned about or a worry about a family member or whatever it might be. Yes? Yes. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's just it's, it's what we do. And mindfulness practice isn't about eliminating any of those. It's not about denying our experience. It's about experiencing our experience and always bringing ourselves back to something that anchors us to the present. Typically, what we anchor ourselves to is an awareness of the breath. Because we always have our breath, right? It's, it's part of us in, for, in every moment. Um, so, the in, um, so for chronic pain patients taking the mindfulness-based stress reduction curriculum, 
It isn't just a matter of being present to um, the physical pain and just instead of denying it or fighting it, just being with it and noticing what happens with it. And often what happens is it kind of comes and goes. And so being aware of not only of when it's when we're uncomfortable, but also when that discomfort subsides. And the same is true with emotional discomfort. We notice when it arises. We notice... Perhaps we notice it peaking. We notice it as it passes away. And as we do that, and as I say that, you can probably begin to see the application to addiction recovery. But as we notice the um, the emotions and we don't co- sort of go into that automatic reactive mode but simply notice it, then we also notice it's passing away. And it fe- doesn't make the feelings any less legitimate that they're temporary. It's just the nature of feelings that they're temporary. And the same with our thoughts as well. Right. So I know that you uh, have done a lot of the background uh, research and and looking up on how it is directly applied to addiction and relapse prevention. Mm -hmm. Tell us some some about that. How's mindfulness practice applied there? Right. Yeah. So mindfulness-based interventions have been used a fair amount in addressing psychiatric and substance use disorders. One of the uh, pioneers in the substance use disorders in the addiction and recovery arena um, is Alan Marlat, a name you may know, who was a relapse prevention researcher for decades at the University of Washington. Unfortunately, he died about three years ago, but his uh, research group can, uh, carries on the work that he did. So he is best known for his um, cognitive-based work in relapse prevention. But like Kabat-Zinn, he was also a, um, a Buddhist practitioner, and he wondered whether bringing together uh, mindfulness practice and relapse prevention um, in much the same way Kabat-Zinn thought of with, um, uh, with working with chronic pain patients, Marlat began to wonder if something similar, some curriculum analogous to mindfulness-based stress reduction, would be useful for people in helping to prevent relapse. And so he and his uh, research group developed mindfulness-based relapse prevention. And this is a curriculum that has um, it, it has a it has a moderate body of research. It's still a relatively new practice, and I would call it a promising practice. It has some research base, but more research is needed. Uh, but it's it, again, it engages these same ideas and principles, but more specifically for people um, who are in relatively early stages of recovery. In the research that's been done on it, it's taken place with people who have been through a treatment program, whether it's a residential or or outpatient treatment program for addiction, and who are now in their aftercare or continuing care setting. So they're really in a place where they need ongoing support for integrating recovery practices in their day-to-day lives and dealing with the basics, like what do you do when a craving arises? What do you do when you get triggered, whether it's by... Uh, an emotional interaction or, you know, just because you walked down the street or drove down the street past a bar where you used to drink. So, you know, dealing with those kinds of early recovery issues is what, that's the specific uh, area in which uh, mindfulness-based relapse prevention uh, is intended to make a difference. Mm-hmm. And what's, it, what's the research showing, the one that mm-hmm. has been done so far? Mm-hmm. Yep. So there are a few things, and one of them is that when people maintain, develop, and maintain um, a mindfulness practice as uh, as is suggested in the curriculum. So let me say that the curriculum itself is uh, an eight-week curriculum, and uh, people who are involved in it meet uh, once a week for two hours per session. And then there are specific practice objectives in between the sessions. And, of course, people are encouraged to continue those practices following the end of the curriculum. So when people engage in a regular basis, um, typically two or more times a week in the between um, the between session practices, then they're more likely to derive benefit. And the kinds of benefits that we that the researchers see are. Uh, 
typically a longer time before uh, first use. So we know that relapse is not unusual at all after people have uh, been through treatment for addiction. And sometimes recovery is an iterative process, you know, where we, mm -hmm. we work at it and and we have a slip or a relapse and we work at it again and you know this may happen multiple times as people work toward the um you know the goal of establishing and maintaining long-term abstinence right it's time for our first break um thank you so much this is really uh helpful very informative Teresa. good stuff our topic today is mindful or mindful the benefits of awareness and my guest is Teresa Libby, and she is the neuroscientist and addictions counselor, and she is the uh, coordinator of the alcohol and drug program at Metropolitan State University in St. Paul. Stay with us. We'll be right back on Spirit of Recovery. As Unity Online Radio continues to expand its programming and outreach to the world, we count on the support of listeners like you. Please make your donation today. Go to www.unity.fm and click on Donate Now. Culture is defined by the Oxford Dictionary as modern popular culture transmitted via mass media and aimed particularly at younger people. But can it be meaningful, spiritual even? The hosts of Pop Conscious think it can be and that it can be fun to explore too. Malena Don and Stacy Macris Ross will be your amateur cultural anthropologists examining pop culture and spirituality every Monday at 2 p.m. Central on Pop Conscious on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. You know the saying, a good deed is its own reward? Well, moving toward a plant-based diet and vegan lifestyle is one kind and compassionate act that isn't just its own reward. It will also reward you with vibrant health, boundless energy, an easy way to keep your weight where you want it, and according to Yogi's and Unity's co-founder Charles Fillmore, even give a boost to your spiritual life. On Main Street Vegan, the radio program named for the popular book, Victoria Moran will make your move in a vegan direction easy, fun, affordable, and delicious. With enticing topics and entertaining guests every Wednesday at 2 p.m. Central Time, only on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. listening to Spirit of Recovery with Reverend Anna Schaus and her guest. If you have a question or comment or experience with today's topic that you'd like to share, call us now at 888-55-UNITY. That's 888-558-6489. Call now or email us at spiritofrecovery at unityonlineradio.org. Now, back to the program. Welcome back to Spirit of Recovery. If you're just joining us, our topic today is Mindful or Mindful, the Benefits of Awareness. And my guest is Theresa Libby. She's a neuroscientist. She is an assistant professor and the coordinator of the Alcohol and Drug Counseling Masters of Science program at Metropolitan State University in St. Paul. And she also uh, is a recovery advocate. She's an addictions counselor and a researcher, and she's authored numerous publications on the neurobiological mechanisms of addictive drugs and she does a great job of making that complex topic easy to understand and for practitioners in the field to understand and for also people in recovery to understand and today we're talking about uh, the benefits of mindfulness and how that is a very important part of relapse prevention and therefore an important part of long-term recovery before I get back to my conversation with Theresa, I invite you to join me for a brief moment of mindfulness for the Serenity Minute. So I invite you to uh, take a moment to be aware of your 
breath and to share with me in just a moment a constructive idea. To notice your breath as it comes in and goes out. To allow yourself to be present in this moment, aware of yourself all the way through your body temple. And share with me this constructive idea. I am present here and now. All is well. I am present here and now. All is well. And we take a moment in the quiet. friends for joining me in the serenity minute and i trust that that was an opportunity for you to relax to take a moment to be aware of yourself in the moment and perhaps make conscious contact with your higher power as you understand it so now i'm back to my conversation with therissa libby and we're talking about mindful or mindful the benefits of awareness so, Theresa, before the break, you were uh, sharing with us about what some of the research is showing about uh, right. the effects. So, tell us more about it for people right. in recovery. Yeah, great. Thank you. So, as I was saying, the studies were done with people who were in the early stages of recovery, and we know how you know the reality is that um, relapse happens slips and relapses happen for a lot of people in the early stages of recovery and sometimes beyond and so what the study showed in terms of benefit a couple of interesting things one of them one of the things it showed is you know, just some basic benefits in terms of um, it, people were able to maintain sobriety um, somewhat longer if they were using the mindfulness-based techniques, um, that they were um, less likely to return to drinking or drug use, and they were less likely to return to heavy drinking. And they also found that... Um, um, that cravings were reduced uh, as a result of mindfulness practice and or specifically the mindfulness-based relapse prevention curriculum and the practices that went with that. And a very interesting uh, finding that they looked at was, well, the question they asked was, what factors were key to getting these positive results? And they found that three factors together contributed. And one was awareness, one was acceptance, one was non-judgment. And no one of those three factors by themselves was enough, but when people showed uh, increases in all three, awareness, acceptance, and non-judgment, um, that corresponded with the, the um, reduced likelihood of returning to use or returning to heavy use. Wow. And so in the definition of these studies, Tell us a little bit about what they meant by those terms. Mm -hmm. Yep, that's great. So the way they're operationalized for research purposes is by uh, uh, results on questionnaires, on survey instruments. And so the individuals participating in the studies would be given these um, questionnaires. There's one called the Acceptance and Awareness Questionnaire. There's the Five-Factor Mindfulness Questionnaire. And these are you know, instruments that are used to take a look at um, uh, people's experience with these, uh, these different qualities. So awareness is, I mean, the, the, the meanings are not too different from how we would use these terms every day. You know, awareness is the um, being present to what's happening in your, you know, in yourself, in your inv immediate environment in the moment. And acceptance is uh, acknowledging that things are as they are. Um, regardless of, you know, there may not be anything to, 
that I can do to change certain circumstances. Um, but I can, as we know, as this is among our recovery principles, I can change, you know, my attitude toward them, what I say about them, um, and um, and I don't have to fight what isn't going to change, <laughs> right? Yeah. I, as we know in recovery, that's not the same thing as saying it's okay um, in the sense that, you know, sometimes bad things happen and it doesn't mean that it was good that those bad things happen necessarily, but it does mean I understand that there are things I can't change. And so rather than um, uh, be... Uh, you know, be overly worried or angry about that, I can notice it and and respond with acceptance. Yes, in fact, there are things I can't change. Mm-hmm. And then non-judgment is a certain stance toward what's going on in my experience because it's very easy for me and I know for many people who are in recovery, even in long-term recovery, um, judging ourselves can be... a one of the uh, one of the big challenges, and so the stance of non judgment is being with things as they are without saying that they should be different, or being with myself the way I am without saying that I should be different. And this comes up all the time in the sort of nuts and bolts of mindfulness practice. I talked earlier about how uh, easy it is when we're engaged in mindfulness practice, when we're meditating, to to drift off into a thought or an emotion or a physical sensation and have that be a distraction. Um, And what I do, what mindfulness practice largely consists of is noticing that and then coming back to the moment, but, you know, using some kind of anchor like the breath to bring me back to the moment. And the non-judgment piece is I don't evaluate myself as doing it wrong because I'm drifting off. In fact, what I notice is drifting off is a perfectly natural thing to have happen. And it's not about stopping it. It's about not about forcing myself to stop it. It's about noticing that I've done it and then coming back without judgment, with gentleness, with openness. Okay, I drifted off. Now I've noticed that and I'm coming back. And 15 seconds later when I do the exact same thing, I, I notice it. And I come back to the moment. I come back to my breath. And if in a five-minute span I've done that 200 times, <laughs> then I've done it 200 times. And I keep noticing and coming back. And so that's a way that non-judgment plays out in mindfulness practice. I love that. And it's funny, when when you're saying that, I, you know, that as I am aware, that is a, a saying in 12-step circles is, Keep coming back. <laughs> How about that? That must be exactly. a spiritual principle or something. So, yeah. does this is this or not uh, what you're talking about? Mindfulness congruent with a twelve step path, and and or are there also other? There are many ways to recover. We know. Mm-hmm. How does this fit in with the the bigger recovery picture? Mm-hmm. Mindfulness. Yep. Yep. Yeah, that's great. So, uh, in. Uh, I think it's it's consonant with multiple recovery paths. I think that um, in uh, 12-step recovery, one of the areas of emphasis, well, one, the central area of emphasis is in um, uh, spiritual awakening and then, um, uh, you know, the path of recovery leading us to um, ongoing conscious contact with a higher power and um, service through carrying the message to others, the, the message of a spiritual solution to the problem of addiction. And... Um, uh, so the the that you know the because it is essentially a spiritual path, um, and because we the um, the eleventh step of twelve step programs talks specifically about prayer and meditation and mindfulness practice as a form of meditation. I think it's a very nice fit, uh, but it's also true that in on, on other recovery paths, it's it is often as good a fit because mindfulness practice. In and of itself, and in the in the in the fact that it's um, uh, derived from Buddhism, is part of a uh, non-theistic and, in many ways, very practical approach to life. Uh, I know I have been I, I've talked um, at length with um, some folks who are uh, uh, active in smart recovery. 
Mm-hmm. And they have sometimes some of the some smart recovery uh, group facilitators have brought information about mindfulness practice and mindfulness based relapse prevention into because smart is essentially a, a cognitive approach and mindfulness practice um, you know dovetails well with cognitive approaches as well um, and so they've brought information on mindfulness based uh, interventions into uh, into smart recovery meetings. Mm-hmm. You are uh, obviously very engaged with counselor education as the coordinator mm-hmm. of that program. Mm-hmm. Do you bring this kind of information to counselors in training? And if so, how does it work? Do they grasp it or how does mm-hmm. that work? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. So there are a couple of different ways that I bring it in. And one of them is uh, it just has to do with the, the classroom environment and in some of the courses I teach, and I, I'm growing to the point of incorporating it in all the courses, but in some of the courses I teach now, we actually engage in mindfulness uh, uh, practices in the classroom. And so I might start a class with five minutes of you know, mindful sitting, or I might... Um, uh, do some guided mindfulness practices. I teach a course every spring for undergraduates called Spirituality and Helping for people who are training to be counselors or human services workers or uh, might be psychology students in, um, in what it means to, uh, to be a spiritually sensitive, spiritually responsive helper. Hmm. Um, yeah, so that's that. In that class, we do many um, mindfulness practices. Uh, most of them are guided practices of one kind or another. And then, when it comes to training our undergraduate and graduate students, I certainly make them aware of the mindfulness-based relapse prevention curriculum and other mindfulness-based interventions that are pertinent to treating people with substance use disorders and co-occurring disorders. And uh, and students. I mean, partly because we do the practices in class as part of the training. Students really enjoy it, <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. you know, and get to oh, spend some class time meditating. That sounds good. Um, For sure. But, yeah, the curriculum is very, uh, the MBRP curriculum is very straightforward. Um, and that's not to say it's, it's easy to, to facilitate. It does, you know, take some, some practice for sure. But it's, uh, but it's very straightforward and, and, and accessible, and, uh, and students tend to, um, tend to get a lot out of it. That's great. Um, if, for listeners here that are interested in this and either probably already practicing uh, some form of meditation, probably, but may want to expand or maybe this is completely new. How would mm-hmm. uh, they access resources or, or enter into this or expand their practice? Mm-hmm. What are some mm-hmm. things they can do? Right. So both mindfulness-based stress reduction and mindfulness-based relapse prevention can provide resources in that regard. If you're in just about any metropolitan area in the country, my guess is you'll find a practitioner in your area who is trained in in delivering mindfulness-based stress reduction, MBSR. And that's the one that I talked about starting back in the 80s with John Kabat-Zinn at University of Massachusetts Hospital. And um, so if you just if you do a search for mindfulness based stress reduction, chances are you will find someone in your area. If not, there are some online resources as well. People have, you know, recorded the the various meditations and you can use their recordings to guide your own practice and so on. And um and John Kabatzin also has, you know, published a couple of books uh about this work. And then for mindfulness based relapse prevention, the um the website uh, for it is mindfulrp.com. Mindful R is in relapse, P is in prevention.com. And for people who are counselors or therapists who would like to be able to deliver the curriculum, there's information there. And and I have no you know monetary interest. I'm just letting you know um, about a resource that's available. I did a training um, through the you know the folks in Alan Marlatt's group who maintain this website. I thought the training was terrific uh, in in MBRP, and I recommend it. And you can go to that website to find out when and where their trainings are. Okay. Wow. Sounds great. Now. You really piqued my interest there with the course you said you teach about spirituality and helping. So in addition to the mindfulness-based practices and information, Mm -hmm. what kind of, what approach do you take? What do you tell people about uh, 
being spiritually sensitive in, in the counseling profession? How do you approach that? Well, in any kind of helping work that we do, whether it's um, in counseling or some other sort of helping profession, you know, it's you know, human services workers, nurses, whomever, um, we want to, you know, be attentive to what's important to the people that we're working with. You know, so if uh, if an individual is uh, you know, comes to us, they, you know, they come to us with a certain body of experience, you know, with a certain cultural background, with a certain, coming from a certain family structure, coming from certain spiritual traditions, possibly. And so we want to be sensitive to what's important to them. You know, it's something that we've talked about in medicine and psychology and in, you know, uh, addiction treatment for some time, you know, for, for decades now. What does it mean to treat the whole person? So part of that is being sensitive to individual spiritual uh, practices and uh, desires and needs. And part of being a spiritually sensitive helper, spiritually responsive helper, is knowing how to give people an opportunity to talk about what's important to them in terms of their spirituality or what gives their life purpose and meaning. So making a space for them to talk about that, seeing what resources might be able to make available to them as a counselor or helper, and also what, um, you know, how that fits into the overall picture of their care. Mm-hmm. That's wonderful. It's time for our second break. Um, my guest is Theresa Libby. She is a neuroscientist. She's an addictions counselor, recovery advocate, researcher, and author. And she is the program coordinator of the Alcohol and Drug Counseling Program at Metropolitan State University. And she's sharing with us about mindfulness and the benefits of that and producing long-term recovery or supporting long-term recovery. Stay with us. We'll be right back on Spirit of Recovery. Does music open your heart and bring you peace and joy? Experience the sacredness of sound with Ramdesh Kaur as we travel the world of mantra, kundalini yoga, and devotional music. Join us for a journey into spirit, Thursdays at 4 p.m. Central, 5 p.m. Eastern, on Spirit Voyage Radio with Ramdesh. Only on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. is full of voices, advertising, television, politics, colleagues, family, and friends. All are too happy to tell us how to live. In all of that noise, it's easy to miss the one voice that matters, your own soul. What would happen if you could hear that voice? Imagine the clarity, confidence, and courage that would be yours and the life you could create. Join Janet Connor, best-selling author of Writing Down Your Soul. The Lotus and the Lily, and Your Soul Wants Five Things, as she and her guests explore how to hear the call of the soul and create the soul-directed life. Live Thursday at 1 p.m. Central, only on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Go inside to find my God. listening to Spirit of Recovery, the place where spirituality and recovery meet, with your host, Reverend Anna Schaus, Ph.D. And now, here's Anna. Welcome to Spirit of Recovery. If you're just joining us, our topic today is Mindful or Mindful, the Benefits of Awareness. And my guest is Theresa Libby, Ph.D. She is an assistant professor and the coordinator of the Alcohol and Drug Counseling Masters of Science program at Metropolitan State University in St. Paul, Minnesota. And she's also a researcher, an author, a neuroscientist, and an addictions counselor. And she is sharing with us a lot 
lots of rich information about how mindfulness practice um, supports long-term recovery and also about uh, the spirituality of being in a helping profession and how that can be so important to uh, be aware of people's spiritual lives and to support them as part of their healing process. So um, we're going to ask you as we get going again, Theresa, to share with us an, a mindfulness exercise that mm-hmm. would be helpful. So Great. So, yeah, I would like to uh, highlight one of the exercises from the Mindfulness-Based Relapse Prevention Manual. And this isn't so much a meditation, but it's used in a it, – it's a mindfulness tool. It's, it's used in a uh, to bring mindfulness into a difficult situation. So the – in the case of working with people who are early in recovery, the example we usually start with is imagine that you're walking down the street and suddenly you realize you're walking across the street, there's a bar where you used to drink. And we know, you know, from my from my work as a scientist, I'm, I'm very familiar, and I'm sure many of your listeners are too, with the uh, 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 the research that's been done on uh, cues and triggers and how specific places, specific people, specific, even specific smells, you know, the site of paraphernalia, like lots of things can bring, can cause what we call cue reactivity. And so when uh, an individual, ha- you know, uh, has these associations and one of those associations gets triggered, uh, it's not unusual for the person to experience a craving. And we know cravings can be very challenging, especially in the early weeks and months of the recovery process. So, so one way of taking on this exercise is imagining that, you, you know, you're walking down the street and you encounter a cue like a bar where you used to drink. But if that's a more distant example for you, if you're a person who's in long-term recovery, you might think about something else that you tend to react to. Um, I, for example, am the parent of a (laughs) 15-year-old. And there are times when my son's behavior, let's just say it wouldn't be surprising if it provoked a certain reaction from me. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, I might get mad, I might tend to raise my voice, but, you know, um, uh, raising my voice and sort of blaring my anger out there, that's not the way I prefer to interact with my son. So uh, so the exercise, this exercise is useful in that kind of context as well. So the, 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 the uh, practice has five steps. And so um, before, before getting to the first step, just imagine for a minute being in one of those kind of triggery situations, whether it's an early recovery and it's a, you know, it's a, a cue of, a using cue of some kind or just any time in life, something to which we would tend to react. And then, you know, when you bring that to mind, then it's possible to take it through this series of, um, of five steps. And the first one is to stop, right? Just slow down, stop, uh, and sort of step out of automatic pilot, right? And then the second step is to observe, to notice what's happening in the moment. Instead of rushing headlong into action, just notice what's happening in the moment. So stop, observe, and then the next thing, once I've got myself in observation and noticing, the next thing is to bring my attention to the breath, right? And again, a breath is, the breath is something that anchors me to the present and anchors me to the moment. So I stop, I observe, I breathe, and then I can expand my awareness. Because I took that moment, I don't have to be on automatic pilot. I don't have to be reactive. And so instead, I can expand my awareness and take in more, you know, other considerations besides the emotional intensity of the moment. And then finally, I respond mindfully. So because, again, because I'm not going with my first impulse, I have the opportunity to choose my action instead of getting locked into an automatic reaction. So stop, observe, breathe, expand awareness, and respond mindfully. And if you were keeping track at home, you'll notice that, that the acronym there is SOBER, S-O-B-E-R. Huh. Stop, observe, breathe, 
expand awareness, and respond mindfully. That's great. Mm-hmm. I like that. So that's, that's simply called the sober breathing space. Ah, that's powerful. Very, very powerful. And again, this comes from the work of Alan Marlat and his colleagues Sarah Bowen and Naya Chawla from the University of Washington, and it's part of the mindfulness-based relapse prevention curriculum. Okay, and uh, you've and, and you also have been a clinician, and um, I'm assuming have used this with people, maybe clients or uh, so forth. How do people respond to it when you? Or, or even the students that you teach now as the counseling students, how do they respond to this? Does it work for them? Mm-hmm. Yep, it does. And I do. It's I don't work with uh, clients anymore, but I I teach full time, and uh, and students find it. And I don't. I teach it students here, undergraduate and graduate students here at Metropolitan State, and I also teach it in uh, continuing education workshops, uh, you know, in different parts of the country. And people tend to find it a very useful exercise, whether they're dealing with uh, craving or some kind of something that generates emotional reactivity. Mm-hmm. Yep, makes a lot of sense. Makes a lot of sense. Now, I know that in addition to your work there at Metropolitan State, you were also part of the addictions ministry team for the Unitarian Universalist um, tradition. So mm-hmm. tell us a little bit about that. It's it's great. There's a, a wonderful denomination there, um, the Unitarian Universalists, that are dealing head on with, with addiction. So how does that work? Yeah, thank you for asking about that. It's um it's really been a pleasure. I've been involved with the uh with the team for about the last 5 years and uh excuse me, the team has been around for gosh, at least 10 years. So the Unitarian Universalist uh Addictions and Recovery Ministry is a uh, a group that's loosely affiliate, affiliated with the Unitarian Universalist Association. And our purpose is essentially to make resources available to clergy, uh, congregants, and congregations that allow them to address uh, addiction and recovery issues within their congregations and communities. And so we there are uh, a number of Unitarian Universalist congregations around the country that have addictions and recovery ministries. There are and there are those who would like to start them. And we work out of a, um, a book by uh, UU Minister Dennis Meekham called the Addiction Ministry Handbook. We use that as a support for people, but we provide additional resources as well that allow people to take a look at in their congregations what you know how would they like to address uh, issues of addiction and recovery? Do they want to have a resource uh, center that's available to congregants and the general public? Do they want to have first responders available for when people are in crisis? Do they want to have some kind of support group um, you know that is run on UU principles that is, um, uh, you know, available at the church, uh, and so on. There are some other examples of the the work that we support through congregational addictions uh, and recovery ministries. And so the, the team exists to support the congregations in moving that work forward um, for themselves. What are some of the, and I'll just say that website, if someone would like to look at that, is uuaddictionsministry.org. It's uuaddictionsministry.org, so you can go on there and see, find lots of great resources um, if you would like. What are some of the success stories or some of the experiences the team has had when you all have worked with churches? How do churches implement this? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, again, it really has to do with what the congregation sees or the, the interested members of the congregation see as uh, their priorities. So one of the things that we suggest after, you know, I mean, often what congregations will start with is sort of putting an interest group or committee or work group together to say, you know, we would like our congregation to be more sensitive and uh, to and aware of issues of addiction and recovery. So where do we want to start? And many times, we, in general, we encourage congregations to do a needs assessment in this area. You know, talk to each other. Find out what's... Um 
what people are looking for, what people are hoping for, where the need is, where the um, where the gaps are that need to be filled, and so it may come out in a needs ass- uh, assessment that what people are really looking for is some kind of support. Very common in UU congregations is people who are looking for recovery support who um, struggle with the theistic approach of AA. So many people who are Unitarian Universalists choose to be part of UUism because they are dedicated to um, to living a spiritual life. But that spiritual life does not necessarily include, uh, you know, a sort of. Uh, a person, uh, a higher power that's kind of a persona. You know, mm-hmm. a person may have a more humanistic approach or a more philosophical approach or a more uh, Buddhist approach. Um, uh, and so they, you know, they find value in spirituality and recovery, but God language is not comfortable for them. A theistic approach doesn't work for them. And so oftentimes what congregants want is some kind of support group or uh, uh, regular meaning that supports them in their recovery work consistent with what they, you know, what, how spirituality or purpose or meaning shows up in their lives. Right. That's yeah, go ahead. No, uh, that, that's one way that, that addictions ministry works. And then another very common way is to have some kind of response group so that if someone in the congregation or from the community goes to the minister or one of the ministers and says, you know, I have a problem, my son has a problem, my sister has a problem, you know, uh, then the minister, you know, may bring whatever resources he or she has to that, but they can also call on a member of the team and say, um, you know, what, do you have some suggestions, do you have some guidelines, do you have some resources available that I can give this person, or could you sit down with this person, and like that. That's great. So it sounds like it's making, makes an interface, make a bridge maybe into the recovery process for people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's great. Our time is up. This has been a wonderful conversation. My guest is Theresa Libby. She is uh, very active, as you can see, as a researcher, as a professor, as a coordinator of the Alcohol and Drug Counseling Program at Metropolitan State University, and also, of course, involved in the Unitarian Universalist Addictions and Recovery Ministry. You can look up uh, more about her and her work at a metrostate.edu and you can search on there for the master's uh, in a alcohol and drug counseling program. She also has a website with other information about her and her publications at www.talibby.com So, uh, Theresa, thank you so much for the work you're doing and thanks so much for being my guest today. You've, you've blessed us. Anna, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. You are most welcome. And blessings to all you listeners out there, and have a wonderful, peace-filled week. And we'll be back next week with Spirit of Recovery. Thank you for listening to Spirit of Recovery with Rev. Anna Schaus, Ph.D., and her guests. Join Anna and her guests live every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Central Time for down-to-earth ideas about keeping spirituality at the heart of your recovery. This program is brought to you in part by Soul Matters Ministry, committed to bringing light to the soul. Online at soulmatters-spiritworks.org. of all life is the infinite wellspring of source, and each of us has a unique way of expressing that source as an individualized soul. Do you enjoy the company of inspiring people who are living on purpose? Do you want to live joyfully attuned to your own unique soul expression? Host Rev. Kristen Powell welcomes you to join the gathering of souls who live this way. You'll meet artists, naturalists, and other soulful expressions that will inspire you to call forth the most alive, passionate version of yourself. Get into the natural stream of your own soul by tuning into Soul Stream live every Wednesday at noon Central Time on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. The river she's flowing.
With all the paths open to us, it's easy to feel lost sometimes. Although the darkness of doubt and confusion may make the best choices difficult to see, there is within each of us a light that helps to illumine our way. When I stop and let inner peace be my guide, I am surely led to good, no matter what the circumstance. The peace I feel within myself paves any path I'm on, making even the roughest roads more manageable. I've heard that it's not so much the destination that matters as the journey itself. So in the midst of deciding which way to go in life, I go within. Wherever I turn, the signs all point to peace. Peace can begin with me. To find a Unity Church near you, please visit our website at www.unity.org. We spend a third of our lives sleeping and dreaming, yet most of us have no idea what goes on during that time. I'm Kelly Sullivan Walden, and as a dream expert and best-selling author, I'm here to empower you to mine the gold from your nighttime dreams. Join me on the Kelly Sullivan Walden Show, part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network, available wherever you get your podcasts. Until we meet again, don't take your dreams lying down.